Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is Dr. Trenton Cole-Jones. Dr. Jones is a cultural historian of public violence in the 18th century Atlantic world. He is studying the culture of war in revolutionary America by analyzing how revolutionary Americans addressed the problems of capturing and confining prisoners of war. Today, you'll hear about his dissertation and future book, Deprived of Their Liberty, Enemy Prisoners and the Culture of War in Revolutionary America, including the real problem of holding prisoners of war captive, American and British treatment of prisoners during the revolution, and how war radicalized the American revolutionary effort. And now, Drs. Jones and Bradburn. Well, welcome. I'm Doug Bradburn, the founding director of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the study of George Washington here at beautiful Mount Vernon on the Potomac River. And I have with me a very special guest today, one of the inaugural fellows, research fellows, that we have here at the library, uh, Trenton Cole-Jones. Cole-Jones, uh, Dr. Cole-Jones, who received his Ph.D., uh, from the Johns Hopkins University just this past summer. He describes himself as a cultural historian of public violence in the 18th century Atlantic world. And he's studying the culture of war in revolutionary America by analyzing how revolutionary Americans addressed the problems of capturing and confining enemy prisoners of war. Cole, what was the title of your dissertation? What is going to be the title of your book? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me here, Doug. This is a wonderful opportunity to talk about my work. Um, the title of the dissertation was Deprived of Their Liberty, Enemy Prisoners and the Culture of War in Revolutionary America. And I titled it that because I wanted to situate the treatment of prisoners of war within the cultural practices of warfare in the 18th century Atlantic world. But as I move forward with the project and and largely this has to do with my time here at the library where I, I started to think about the broader significance of my project hmm. for the study of the American Revolution, uh, I've decided to retitle it Captives of Liberty, Prisoners of War, and the Radicalization of the American Revolution. Well, interesting. That, that is a, uh, that's a thesis in that title. <laughs> that's a serious uh, a step uh, in the right direction, I think, in terms of trying to, uh, to bring it all to some broader significance. So let's Let's do a little biographical look at uh, Cole Jones. Uh, you know, the, the experience of getting a Ph.D. is a long, fraught, difficult affair, particularly a Ph.D. in the humanities, particularly a Ph.D. in history, which is the non, now I think, unfortunately, the average time it takes to get a Ph.D. is longer than any other, um, not at Johns Hopkins, which is notorious for rushing people through before they're ready, um, that's you know one man's opinion, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but at any rate, uh, talk a little bit about how you how you made that decision. How did Cole Jones become Doctor Cole Jones? Why did you do it? Wonderful. Uh, first, I'll say I certainly did not rush through the PhD. I took all of seven years uh, to accomplish it. Um, 
but it was a process I'd always wanted to do ever since I was a child. I've been particularly fascinated by the founding era and particularly fascinated by the stories we tell about it and how deified the founders are in today's culture, but yet how distant they are. You know, these are not people that we, we put them so far up on a pedestal that we don't really understand that these were human beings who faced real problems. Uh, and I wanted to figure out how they addressed Well, they're part problems. of the reason for that. I mean, these guys weren't exactly out to try to make themselves lovable and uh, well understood, at least some of them. I mean, Washington in particular is notorious for, you know, keeping people at arm's length even in his own lifetime, so... I think one of the interesting things about Washington and the, the founders more generally uh, is how obsessed they were with posterity. They knew that they were doing something important. They knew that they were changing the world, and they were obsessed with the way future generations would uh, see their efforts and judge their efforts. Um, and that certainly has put that distance. You know, this is uh, in many ways, uh, you know, the opposite of Abraham Lincoln, who everyone can feel, uh, you know, uh, a kindred spirit to. Um, they, they seem so aristocratic in their powdered hair and knee breeches uh, that we can't really relate to them today. Photography helps, too, with Lincoln. <laughs> You're exactly I, right. I mean, I think that. It's sort of like, you know, there's portrait photography, which probably wouldn't be... But there's also the candid photography. There's Lincoln on a battlefield. You know, there's Lincoln, you know, in his office. There he's doing things. And uh, it's just, you know, the founders are... They're painted, or their statues, you know, and and that 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 will always, I think, keep a, a, a little bit of distance from at least a modern sensibility. No, and I think I think that they would have appreciated that, um, yeah. and I don't think that that's going to change because I think it's important for Americans to have them there in that place. Yeah. It's important to our national identity to mm. have them sort of sanctified in marble, if you will. Interesting. Uh, uh, that's the way you said that is probably not a, a very uh, popular opinion amongst academicians. Mm -hmm these days, where the founders are often portrayed as hypocrites, largely, and not the main story, which is, you know, the society, social trends, uh, different marginal groups and their struggle for uh, acceptance. Uh, so, you, But you still use, without flinching, a notion of national identity and the importance of it in the founding. Talk a little bit about that. Certainly. Well, I think what academic historians are doing uh, such a good job of and what my project aims to do is to do is to pull the founders off of that that marble, to pull mm -hmm. them off of that pedestal, uh, to to reveal the real struggles that they coped with and uh, and broaden our understanding of the founding era. Uh, but it's because it is because they're up there on that pedestal is because Americans take them so seriously that they have such value and that the study of the founders is so important so crucial to our narratives so yes absolutely we, yeah. we need to re we need to uh, reveal them for the complex and contested uh, characters that they were right um, mm -hmm. but that's important that uh, Americans um, continue to take that seriously. Okay, good. So, you know, one of the things about Cole Jones that not everybody knows that I know uh, from his time here is that he's an avid collector of tiny men. Uh, <laughs> tiny men made of, I guess, lead is the thing they're made of. Talk a little bit about your collecting obsession. I've, I'm fascinated by people who collect. It, it takes mm -hmm. uh, a certain personality. It takes, um, I think it, it takes a certain discipline and rigor. I mean, it, it is a... It's 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 something you come to be an expert in, um, and that people who have those sort of expertise and interests are are always more interesting than people who don't. It seems to me. 
tell me a little bit about tell tell our <laughs> audience out there a little bit about your your personal Gold Jones collection. Sure, uh, I th actually think uh, collecting and my history as a collector uh, was really fundamental to training or shaping who I am as a historian. Mm. The two processes are very similar. It's about going out and accumulating um, evidence, if you will, mm. uh, and then uh, categorizing that evidence and, and, and putting it in a way that is uh, approachable and understandable, weaving it together in a narrative, if you will. Uh, the same sorts of uh, habits that I bring uh, to an antique market, I bring mm. to the archive mm. when I'm looking for sor sources. Uh, but yes, my whole life I've uh, collected uh, vintage uh, antique toy soldiers, mm. mostly made in France uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, and I'm fascinated about the, the place of, uh, of these figures uh, within the culture of militarism in the late 19th mm. and early 20th centuries, mm. the idea that these were children's toys meant to inculcate nationalism, meant mm. to inculcate uh, a militarist identity, mm. uh, which I find I find very, uh, at, the, at one point, very um, disconcerting, mm. uh, but at the same time, uh, very illuminating of that era. Uh, interesting era, uh, an era that romanticizes war, uh, what happens after World War One with these toy figures? Do they become less popular? Do, do people take a, a more a, a longer, a different view of them? What What do you What do we know? Yes, on uh, on some front, uh, World War One was disastrous for the toy soldier. The Western industry. Front. The uh, Western Front. Exactly, the Western <laughs> Front. Uh, not only were uh, did children were children encouraged to uh, bring their toys in uh, to government collection points to be melted down to make. Uh, bullets, um, but after the war, there was a general revulsion uh, against warfare. Uh, the, the the killing fields of the Western Front looked nothing like uh, the battlefields in the playground with toy soldiers. Yes, uh, you yeah. know it was a very different image of war that people yeah. came away from. So you do see uh, a decline in military subjects. Uh, the toy soldier companies switched to civilian uh, agricultural uh, labor, really, um, little farms and houses and. Um, postal well, somebody service. Somebody uh, else wanted. Somebody wanted some serfs. They would yeah. get some peasants. Uh, exactly. Uh, yeah, but very quickly, agricultural yeah, figures. Farm, I've never heard that. Farms were very big. Interesting. Um, uh, huh. But then that changes again with the coming of the Second World War, with mm. a, a recurrent of militarism and nationalism, mm. uh, and that's the second great wave of the toy soldier industry. Mm. Interesting. That's uh, fascinating. Okay, so let's get back to the main uh, chance here. Let's get back. Uh, to your own work. All right, so why prisoners of war? Uh, why did you decide that was the route to go uh, in, 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 in where you're going to spend your next, you know, seven years? You're in <laughs> graduate school. It's not only going to be writing the dissertation, it's going to be transforming the book. Why did you, how did you come to your project? Well, I was very interested in the idea of uh, the problems that the founding fathers and the revolutionary generation more broadly had to deal with. Um, and when the war comes, they're terribly unprepared to fight a war against the largest imperial uh, military power uh, in the Atlantic world, who had just defeated France uh, during the Seven Years' War. Um, they, they, they lack a, a centralized military system. They lack uh, much experience, um, and so they have to rely on European precedents when uh, forming their army. And one of the problems, you know, I could have looked at any number of uh, different uh, problems uh, related to forming an army, um, but one of the problems that struck me as being very significant is what do you do with uh, 
your enemies when you capture them, and uh, uh, they're they're no longer resisting. You know, do you take no prisoners? Is this that type of war, mm. um, or do you treat them as gentlemen? Uh, how do you treat officers versus common soldiers? What about sailors? What about privateers? Well, the most vexing problem of all was, what do you do with loyalists? These are Americans mm. who have betrayed the Double revolution. Double betrayers, exactly. Right? Um, how do you deal with those problems? The internal civil war aspect of the American Revolution I find fascinating. So uh, it, it's a great topic. I mean, it's, it's, I think there's a lot of thought that this has been done. A lot of this has been done. I mean, what, what's your sense? Well, with prisoners of war, there's a large literature on uh, how the British treated American prisoners. Mm. Um, most recently, Edwin Burroughs. Uh, forgotten Patriots, uh, who argues that the British treatment of, uh, of American prisoners was tantamount to a war crime. Uh, he says 18,000 American prisoners died in British custody. More than half of all uh, prisoners captured perished. Uh, and on the other side of that, there is a, uh, an argument uh, most famously uh, put forward by David Hackett Fisher uh, that suggests that the American Revolution is an example of the humanitarianism of the Founding Fathers, that the humanitarian ideals of the Enlightenment meshed with their uh, Republican ideology allowed Americans to create a, uh, a peculiar and peculiarly American way of war that privileged humanitarian concerns in treating prisoners of war well. There can be no doubt that the revolutionary leadership, when they began the conflict, wanted to treat prisoners of war humanely, according to European traditions. That is, officers were afforded much better treatment than enlisted men, but that prisoners of war should be generally uh, well handled and released quickly through exchanges. But for a variety of factors and reasons that I analyze in, in my book, uh, that falls through very quickly, mm -hmm. within the first year of the war, mm -hmm. and Americans begin to demand revenge for the British treatment yeah. of American prisoners. Yeah, that interesting retribution. Yeah, that that is a theme that uh, came up in an earlier conversation we were having about uh, uh, the American states. Um, how successful were Americans at retribution? Um, how much was this just Sturm and Drang? How much was Washington able to do anything to stop it? Uh, or did he want retribution as well? How did, how did it how did it evolve? Very quickly, when the conflict began. Uh, the revolutionary press began to um, send out numerous accounts of the British tr mistreatment of American yeah. prisoners yeah. with the hope of riling up the population and encouraging support for the revolutionary effort. Look at these British uh, people. Look what they're doing. Look how they're treating your neighbors. Um, well, they'd be, very right. they started that before the war, right, with all the threat of the Hessians coming exactly, over. Exactly. How could our king hire these foreigners to come in and uh, massacre their women and children. And Precisely. So it begins yeah. at the beginning. It does. It begins uh, at the are beginning. Are there atrocities uh, of the uh, the British and the Hessians? There certainly are, and, and, and my project does not, uh, does not exculpate uh, the British high command. Um, mm. uh, but I think it's more complicated than some of our narrative suggests. Mm. It's, it's not necessarily a premeditated um, attempt to mistreat American prisoners. It more has to do with failures for the British to actually articulate what this war is. Yeah. You know, is this a civil war? Is this a war of rebellion? Um, are these traitors? Or should they be uh, accorded more humane conventions? Yeah, it's a real lack of, uh, of leadership and communication, in essence, where you have, on the one hand, conciliation being offered to Congress, and on the other, 
everyone being called rebels and, and <laughs> the rhetoric basically being that we're going to hang every rebel from every tree and exactly. it, it, it's uh it's not a great way to convince people that you're you're ready <laughs> to uh, to give in so at any rate okay so the the the, the american the whig press is very good at, uh, at ginning up the stories exactly. and spreading every small uh, story of atrocity true or untrue into some sort of mobilization outcome. You're exactly right. Uh, and they start to press their uh, local constituencies and especially Congress to exact retaliation on British prisoners. It seems it's seemingly the best way to stop the British from their behavior is to threaten to retaliate on uh, on the prisoners in American custody. And that, that threat of retaliation had uh, a long um, history within the European culture of war that you, inf you could enforce uh, the, con uh, the codes of conduct in warfare by the threat of reciprocal retaliation. Mm. Um, and Congress does that over and over again. They threaten, they threaten, and they threaten, and it doesn't get anywhere. Uh, the British persist in um, and their behaviors, and Americans become increasingly outraged, uh, first with the British and then later with Congress for their handling of the war. That is married to the problem that Congress does not have full control of the war effort. Mm -hmm. uh, Congress is not, uh, is not the final arbiter in these issues. The states are all uh, raising independent military forces. Mm -hmm. um, the states are capturing prisoners of their own. Um, and, uh, and Congress can only recommend uh, behavior rather than demand it. And Washington's caught up in this. Washington it, he sees himself as a European officer. He sees himself as wanting to play by the rules and treat prisoners humanely. But uh, as the war goes on, he, it becomes very clear that he, he lacks the control that he needs to be able to enforce that policy. Right, yeah, so he can uh, sign capitulations, I guess. At some point, he, the one at Yorktown is the big one. Exactly. That he's involved in, uh, and, uh, and can try to guarantee all sorts of protections for prisoners, but, but is he able to enforce those guarantees? So the Yorktown uh, example is a great one. Great, let's uh, lay it out. Uh, yeah. uh, when Cornwallis' army surrenders uh, to the combined Franco-American force at Yorktown in October of 1781, Washington, uh, <laughs> Washington sets out a very uh, lenient treaty, actually, uh, for the surrender of the of the troops, the officers. Now let's by put and large... a let's put a pause here mm. because you have a revision in this uh, in your interpretation because the way Yorktown is typically taught, the way I've thought about it and probably taught it, um, is that uh, Washington doesn't give the the British the honorable terms that uh, they desired, and he's basically um, uh, sticking a little mud in their eye because of the what they offered to Benjamin Lincoln. Uh, General Lincoln, when he capitulated uh, the posts at uh, Charleston uh, the year before, right? So that the story is that the, the, uh, at Charleston, the Americans weren't given the full honors of war. They had to case their uh, standards. Um, uh, many people were made prisoners. And so uh, Washington was giving the same terms to Cornwallis that uh, they, the British had given to, to Lincoln. And you saying, rubbish. Rubbish. Okay, let's, uh, let's hear it. Yeah. So if you analyze both of these situations within the context of the European culture of war, the way European armies would have handled it, yeah. uh, it you get a very different picture. Mm. Uh, in the European culture of war, when an army is besieged, like Lincoln was at Charleston or um, uh, Cornwallis at Yorktown, 
you go through a sort of dance, a yeah. song and dance of negotiations where yeah. the uh, besieged party uh, offers to surrender under amazingly generous terms that effectively let them go free uh, with no stipulations. Uh, then the besieger will counter with a harsh uh, counter offer mm. Um, mm. suggesting that they surrender unconditionally <laughs> without any protections uh, and then they meet in the middle and they come up with something very sort of yeah. moderate yes they're going to become prisoners of war but the officers will be given their paroles they're allowed to wear their swords uh, the officers will be uh, often allowed to go home on their paroles right. uh, and the enlisted men will be uh, exchanged very quickly but it also has to do with how they resisted too right if they resisted with honor, gallantly, if they resisted for a certain length of time, you know, in which they proved that they, you know, they could have held out for much longer, but let's, you know, not have any more bloodshed. No, you're exactly, saying, right? You're exactly I mean, there, right. there's that aspect There of is it. that aspect, the too. The gallant defense. Uh, the gallant defense all, almost always will guarantee more uh, generous surrender terms. Mm, mm, uh, if you mm -hmm. if you surrender your garrison after the first shot is fired, yeah. it, you look like a coward. You're not, you don't deserve the honors of war because mm. you didn't earn them. Mm. Uh, sort of paradoxically, you would think uh, that you would get more uh, generous terms surrendering early. Um, but the situation in Charleston was Lincoln's garrison did a pretty good job. Mm. They held Clinton up for a long time. Uh, and uh, and the British, if you look, read their journals, the British officers are very impressed by American siege work. Mm. Um, they think the Americans have done a pretty good job. So are they going to let them go completely? Absolutely not. These are still rebels in arms, mm. mind you. Mm. Uh, but to allow uh, the Continental Regulars to be treated officially as prisoners of war, which the British had not done up to that point, mm. is a huge mm. change in British policy. So uh, no American captives up to that point were treated as prisoners of war, or, or no large groups? No large groups had yeah. been officially accorded yeah. uh, yes. that the sta standing of prisoners of war. Right, in, in, a, in, exactly. a, capitulation in a capitulation document. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. And Clinton lets uh, the American militia go home on their parole, That's... letting common soldiers effectively, you know, say, give their word of honor not to take up arms. It's Did that turn very, around to Biden? How many of those militiamen went and they went? So know? it became a problem yeah. when Clinton changed <laughs> his mind. Uh, uh, and see. he ends up, uh, he thinks that he's won. He thinks that he's pacified the South. Uh, and that everyone is happy, and he's got his continental prisoners, but that the population at large are basically loyalists. So he creates a, a proclamation that um, uh, basically overturns his treaty of, of, of surrender to Lincoln, where he revokes the paroles to the militia. And he says, you know, you're not on parole anymore. You don't need to worry about being on parole anymore. But, but now you're a British subject. So instead of an American citizen on parole, on parole yeah. you're now a British subject and you owe militia duty. That is um, confusing. Very yeah. confusing yeah. and infuriating yeah. if you are yeah. one of the defenders of Charleston. Right. Uh, he's broken his promise. Mm. Um, so this, with this context in mind, Clinton having given a very generous treaty to Lincoln, right. but then breaks breaking that treaty, troth, yeah. um, breaking that treaty, uh, that's the, when you take that context and then you look at uh, Yorktown, and you look at Washington and how Washington treats Cornwallis and giving him the same terms that Clinton gave uh, Lincoln, it's a very favorable treaty, um, very favorable mm. treaty. So, mm. um, and, and Cornwallis is incredibly happy with it. Mm. Uh, he gets to go back to New York <laughs> and then England. 
you know, yeah. scot-free effectively on his parole. In fact, almost all of the officers of the garrison at Yorktown go back to New York on parole. Right. Um, and they even get to sneak out a shipload of Tories. And they right? even get to, exactly, exactly. And, so, uh, this is a very generous. Uh, and Tarleton makes that well because they did resist to the end. Exactly. And, and uh, they got to ride they out their horses, their, right? And their sabers drawn. Wow. Uh, which was a significant uh, symbol of their yeah. bravery of their defense. So, um, you know, in that context, clearly, this mm. is a very generous treaty, and members of Congress and especially uh, yeah, members yeah. of state governments are infuriated yeah. by Washington's treaty. Yeah. Uh, they think he's just made a terrible blunder. Yeah, well, that's right. So that they glory over the victory and then behave poorly. Uh, that's not surprising. So, so back to the the main storyline. Then this question of so Washington signs these these treaties of capitulation, makes these promises to the the prisoners of war. What happens to them? The problem is the Continental Army does not have the bureaucratic infrastructure necessary to house and supply these prisoners. Washington has commissary generals of prisoners who are theoretically in charge of prisoner management, but in order to take care of nearly 6,000 captured men and women that are with them, they have to turn these people over to state governments mm -hmm. uh, in order to supply them uh, and house them. Uh, first in Virginia, um, and then later in Maryland and Pennsylvania, when the state's bickering over uh, their individual prerogatives, uh, they don't want these guys, they don't want to feed these guys. Uh, eventually, Virginia will kick these poor guys out. Uh, Maryland will do the same, and they wind up spending the rest of the war uh, in prison camps in Pennsylvania, where they are very poorly supplied, uh, very mistreated by their state militia prison guards, uh, mm. and the mortality rate is over 30%, which is higher than Andersonville Prison during the Civil War. Mm. Uh, an untold story, uh, certainly in the mainstream of the of the American Revolution, is the the prisoners of war dilemma. So let me go back to then your main thesis. I mean, you call yourself a cultural historian. You often have said to me that you want to have a readable, narrative-driven history, which is a laudable, although uh, challenging um, prospect, very different from many dissertations, which are more analytical in their frame. So what is the major takeaway from the book itself? What is, you know, what is the so what factor? Sure. I... Uh... I've positioned this uh, project uh, to, to tell the narrative of radicalization, what I call radicalization, uh, and how the experience of war and the violence of the war itself radicalizes uh, the revolutionary uh, effort. Um, and so a combination of British atrocities uh, and civil war um, with the fact that the revolutionary government, by throwing off a monarchical culture and creating a republican uh, regime, uh, are unable to um, constrain the democratizing effects mm -hmm. of the war on society uh, leads to an escalation of violence. And mm -hmm. so the real claim I'm trying to make is that America's war for independence was a revolutionary war. It wasn't, that's not just the name. It was a revolutionary war. It was far more revolutionary than the elite founding fathers wanted. Uh, they, many of them tried to control it, but it got out of hand and they saw no way of stopping it. And that that was whitewashed after the war. Uh, that in the telling and the creating of the narratives of the Revolutionary War, uh, the violence of the conflict was downplayed uh, significantly. So we get this very conservative uh, picture of the war itself when actually it was a deeply radical event. 
uh, fascinating. I mean, I think we talked about this when you were here a little bit, that, you know, when, when we look at sort of Gordon Wood's radicalization of the American Revolution and, and going really back to J. Franklin Jameson's uh, uh, The American Revolution Considered as a Social Movement, it's a fascinating series of lectures that originally done in the late 19th century, published in the 1920s, in which he uses the metaphor that the revolution once begun overflowed its banks. And it's all very naturalistic. There's a lot of actors in there. These, uh, the, 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 it's like water bursting a dam and then <laughs> going and flooding things mm-hmm. and spreading in, uh, you know, in, in unforeseen ways. And, the, and that the, radicalization, the radical aspects of the revolution, if there are any, are post their consequences mm-hmm. uh, unintended consequences and they're usually framed around ideas you know exactly. that these these powerful ideas of equality and liberty uh, open up opportunities for people to imagine uh, different kinds of society rules of work rules of political behavior uh, the element of the war has always gotten very small treatment in any sort of uh, question there's the work of John Shy. You know, so talk talk a little bit about you know some of the other historians who've tried to think about the the the, the war of itself, its violence, the experience of it, its impact on the character of American society going forward. There's a very small number, I think. Yeah, it's 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 not really been appreciated. I think the role of the war in um, in in the process we call the American Revolution, it's been sort of disaggregated and, mm. and sanitized. Um, from the political and social narratives that we tell of the revolution. Uh, John Shy famously wrote an essay where the war for independence reconsidered as a revolutionary war. Um, but in the end, uh, he comes down uh, to claim uh, effectively that militarily, the war actually was very conservative. Mm, mm. And I think that that has so much to do with George Washington himself and his mm. writings uh, and how much of a consummate European officer uh, he saw himself uh, as really... Um, presenting an image of the war as being one that is much more um, old world, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yes, you get that sense of a of a man trying to create a uh, you know a European style army right from the beginning mm-hmm. uh, when he goes up to you know take over this rabble around Boston. You've got Gage all pinned up. Mm-hmm. With nowhere to go, silly Gage. <laughs> uh, you know, and from the beginning trying to get some sort of hierarchy. But, you know, uh, he doesn't do it like, I mean, he, he doesn't create a European army. And I think he would, I mean, he recognizes that. It's a constant struggle. It's not like, look at this army I have. It's now European, right? No, you're exactly right. Uh, great quote realized, to Major yeah. Sterling in which he writes, uh, people who are not used to restraint must be led. They cannot be forced or something like that. Uh, when Sterling blunders and sends half the militia home because he tells them to you know, do something they should do. So yes. he so he's aware of that dynamic, but yeah, projecting I think. And I think that's suggest. largely been analyzed in, in the on the realm of strategy. And yeah. you know, yeah. Washington's strategy is it looks distinctively non-European, um, but if you bring it back down to the level of uh, the what they what they would have called at the time uh, the law of nations and the laws of war, um, his vision is distinctly European. It is distinctly one of upholding to the rel- uh, upholding to these rules that have been sanctified uh, by other nations. He wants the, he wa- and, it, and it makes sense because he wants the United States to be seen as a respectable nation mm-hmm. in the eyes of mm-hmm. the world. 
Yeah, I mean, Washington, if, if anything, he's obsessed with the right way of doing things. And the right way of doing things are defined by those particular precepts and rules and, you know, given the grand name that they're given, uh, <laughs> you know, to cover over the brutality of uh, killing people in an organized fashion. Uh, and he definitely believes that's the right way to do. I, I, I love the uh, aspect that you're going to bring out, the, the, the role of the war in, in, in radicalizing behavior, retaliation is important there, and mobilization and justification, what they're doing. Uh, and I really look forward to seeing it. So, um, uh, you know, talk a little bit, I guess, about um, where you're headed with it, how much more you need to do, the, the process. You're a fellow at the American Antiquarian Society right now. Uh, what's that like? Uh, absolutely. So the American Antiquarian Society has uh, afforded me this wonderful uh, uh, Hench post-dissertation fellowship to allow me to spend the year really working on honing the manuscript uh, into a publishable uh, monograph. Uh, I'm freed of teaching responsibilities or uh, committee responsibilities that many junior faculty have when they're trying to work on their projects, and I can really devote time uh, to uh, recrafting uh, the narrative. Uh, as I proceed, I'm, I'm writing a chapter right now on how the war was envisioned in the 19th century and how the story of the violence of the war was effaced mm. from, um, from our narratives yeah. of the revolution. Uh, memory, that, the memory, memory the memory chapter. Mem yes, the yeah. final chapter is called The Memory of War. Yeah. Uh, and, that's, uh, and that will sort of bring us around full uh, circle uh, from the European-style war that we began with to the European-style conservative war that we, we think uh, occurred. Um, so um, that's the primary uh, agenda at the moment, um, mm. but uh, I also imagine I have to I have to cut out a few hundred pages of verbose <laughs> prose, uh, and that the dissertation was overly long. How do you write? Uh, what is your writing pr process like? Do you just wing it when the spirit comes <laughs> to you, or do you have a, a ritual where you put on a, a gray stocking cap that your grandmother gave you that you? Every morning at seven o five, and you lay out uh, you know two thousand words at, by noon, and then you then you go take a nap and <laughs> have a uh, have a you know have a, a cup of tea around three, and then you <laughs> you call a friend and do some business for an hour and a half after that, and then you put on an old episode of Matlock and watch that, and then you, then you get back at it and you write for another two hours, but this time you wear a baseball cap. You know, what, what is your... I own a baseball cap. <laughs> so what is your ritual of, uh, of writing, if you have Sure, any? yeah. So I start with the sources and compiling yeah. the sources, and I sort of allow the sources yeah. to uh, create an outline for me. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And once I have that outline, a very detailed outline, uh, then I can begin, at, you know, crafting how I want to tell the narrative. Uh, and I'm very narrative-driven in my writing. So you're laying um, out your sources largely chronological, but then yes. you may think there's pockets where you have to sort of jump back. Of course. You know, anytime yeah. I'm dealing with a sort of thematic issue, I right. have to analyze it analytically within the narrative. Um, yeah. But, you know, I found that for me, uh, writing more than about two hours of intense writing uh, mm -hmm. is, is pretty arduous and and the quality of my writing after hour two uh, decreases significantly yeah. so I like to write in the morning mm. uh, and totally um, uh, undistracted by email or internet yeah. or uh, mm. Facebook as I want to you don't uh, write by at. candlelight with a feather <laughs> pen alas no yeah. um, <laughs> alas no and I've also found that uh, that reading is so important to writing mm. so I'll spend my afternoons reading secondary sources primary sources, it really prepares me for the next day's writing. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I, I find uh, 
when I'm when I'm struggling with a particular formulation in writing that uh, I will work on it like a Gordian knot right before bed, oh, and wow. then go to sleep, and in the morning I've approached it, and uh, my my mind will have worked on it while I was asleep, and mm-hmm. and I have the solution many times many in the times. morning how to make it come together better. I, I do believe that it's uh, it works for me so. Try that. Sometime. I will. I will give that some try. Uh, interesting stuff. Well, okay. Well, thank you so much, uh, Cole Jones. Dr. Cole Jones. Dr. Jones, <laughs> I presume. It's so good to see you back here again. So good uh, to be back. And uh, uh, I, I look forward to your work and the book coming out. And thank you very much for spending this time and, and your thoughts with us. Well, thank you so much, Doug. We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.